Have you ever found yourself in a situation where someone you love and esteem was being treated disrespectfully by people who were not only ignorant but arrogant? And then what really raises the stakes and makes the experience even more distressing is when you know that your kind and self-controlled friend who's a thousand times wiser than his critics could humiliate his opponents with just a few words and some decisive action if he so chose. In your soul you can hardly stand the absurdity. It's so wrong. It's so inequitable. It's so unjust. It's so outrageous. You just want your friend to demonstrate his superiority. You want him to rise to the occasion and leave his opponent speechless. And when he finally does, it feels so good. I like movies that build vindication like that into their plots. You're just waiting for it to happen. And when it finally happens, it, it makes you say, Yeah, go get them. Bring them down. Shut them up. Now, there's probably some sin in that delight that we take when that happens. And I don't want to excuse that. But there's also some old-fashioned justice in it. Right triumphing over wrong. Truth triumphing over error. Good triumphing over evil. Well, this is what happens in the drama of our text this morning. The hero, our hero, is Jesus Christ, the Savior. The villains are the scribes and Pharisees who despise and falsely accuse our Savior. They think they've got him on the horns of a dilemma. They think they've caught him in some careless, even blasphemous language. But they haven't. By the end of the brief episode, Jesus turns the tables on them, and they end up being the blasphemers, not him. And when the incident ends we see that faith is rewarded and unbelief is exposed. So let's jump into the plot and watch it unfold and draw from it some practical applications. I'm going to try to limit myself to about 30 minutes for this message. You pray for me that I'll be able to do that. And if I do, please don't hold that over my head for the rest of my life. <laughs> Notice the passage. And when he returned, this is Mark 2.1, to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. This is probably the home of Peter and Andrew. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men, and when they could not get near him, that would be Jesus, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, literally, 
my child, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning it in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. You see what's happening here, it's pretty simple, but packed full of significant truth and application. Jesus is back in Capernaum, probably at the house of Peter and Andrew, as I just said. The house is jam-packed with people. There's not even room at the door. And Jesus is doing his favorite thing. And it's not miracles. His favorite thing is to preach the Word. And right in the middle of the sermon, he starts getting interrupted. Perhaps some debris begins to fall from the ceiling on his own head, and I like to think of it falling on the heads of the scribes and Pharisees as well. And they're all looking up, and they see light. They see the sky, and they see people, and they see several men, and pretty soon they see a man being let down on a mat or a cot, a pallet, by four ropes. And when he's let down... At the very feet of Jesus, this man who's obviously paralyzed, perhaps a quadriplegic, the strangest words come out of the mouth of our Savior. The first words that come out of the mouth of our Savior perhaps seem very strange. And we've read them. He says, my child, literally, my child, your sins are forgiven. The arrogant, ignorant scribes and Pharisees who are there think they have obtained their purpose. That's why they were there. They think they've heard all they need to hear. Now, they were there, by the way, to spy out Jesus and hopefully to find something erroneous so that they could go back and report to the Sanhedrin and to the world at large that this man's a false prophet, this man's a heretic. And if I had time, I would take you to Luke and show you something very significant because Luke tells us that in that home... There were scribes and Pharisees, now listen to this, I'm quoting verbatim, from every village throughout Judea and Galilee and Jerusalem. There's a lot of villages. 
scribes and Pharisees from every... Jesus is causing a huge problem for these scribes and Pharisees. They're very nervous about him. They're very troubled about him. He's teaching with authority. He's doing miracles. He might be pulling the carpet out from under their feet. They're not drawing crowds like this. They've got to find something wrong with Jesus. And they're sitting there and they say, Aha! Did you hear that? To themselves, they're saying it. They think that he has just blasphemed. And they're actually rejoicing. Out of one side of their mouth, they're saying, He shouldn't say that. That's blasphemous. That's a terrible sin. We're opposed to blasphemy. Down in their hearts, they're probably glad he blasphemed because it's going to be his undoing, they hope. Jesus knows their thoughts and he immediately lets them know that he knows their thoughts. And he proceeds to prove that he has authority to forgive sins. He has authority to forgive sins and he proceeds to let them know that by proving, in fact, that he is God. And he proves that he's God by, hearing, by healing the paralytic. And so he gives the paralytic just three short commands. He says, I uh, just want you to do three things. One, rise, get up. Two, pick up your bed. And three, go home. And you can just imagine that the scribes and Pharisees are sitting there with bated breath, but they don't have to sit there long because immediately the paralytic gets up picks up his bed, and he goes home. So amazing. So amazing because the man who came on a bed goes home carrying the bed. The man takes the sign of his sickness, namely his bed, and carries it out as a sign of his healing, but especially a sign of the sovereign authority and divine nature of Jesus Christ who has power not only to raise the paralytic, but to forgive sins. Now, what I want to do this morning is look at this now just a little bit closer and I'm going to quickly draw out seven applications for us. Now, I'm going to point them out in the order in which they emerge in our text. And I'd like to think of them as um, six full moons and one bright sun. Um, You know, we have one bright sun and we have one moon which becomes full once a month. I want you to think of of a sky at nighttime with six bright moons, but I want you to think of the sky during the daytime with a bright sun. Because I'm going to point out what I believe to be the most important truth that Jesus himself had in mind when he performed this miracle. But let's start with the moons. First of all, the first full moon concerns our Savior's primary ministry in life. And I've already pointed out, isn't it? Haven't I? What was his favorite thing to do? What was he here primarily to do? He was here to preach and teach the word. We see that in verse 2. We've already been told in chapter 1 that he came to preach the gospel and to declare that the kingdom of God was at hand. We found him in a synagogue teaching the word of God. When he goes away to a place of prayer and Peter or whoever says, could we come back, Jesus, come back, they're waiting for you in Capernaum. He says, no, I need to go to other villages as well and preach the gospel. Jesus Christ was preeminently a preacher of the gospel. He was first and foremost a man of the word of God. 
And there's a lesson in there for us. The miracles that he performed were subsidiary. That is to say, they, were, they had a secondary purpose. They were primarily to, to attest his authority and to undergird his preaching and his teaching and to prove that he was who he claimed to be. And I want to suggest, dear people, that this must always be the primary purpose and activity of Heritage Baptist Church. We, like our Savior, must be word-centered, Bible-based in all that we do. And that will impel us to worship God with joy, and that will impel us to serve Him with humility, and that will impel us to evangelize with passion. But we must be first and foremost about the Word of God as our Savior was. Moon number two. Desperate people will take desperate measures in order to get to Christ. That's sort of obvious, but I'm just pointing it out. Desperate people will take desperate measures to get to Christ if they are persuaded that they are in big-time trouble and He's their only hope. They will not be easily dissuaded or put off. They will not take no for an answer. And Jesus loves to see that kind of faith and that kind of repentance and that kind of desperation, and He always rewards it. And I want to suggest that that should be true in all of our conversions in one sense. I want to be careful about setting before you some uh, notion that unless you have a certain degree of desperation, you cannot be saved. I, I don't want to do that, but I do want to say this, that no one can truly return from their sins and flee to the Lord Jesus Christ who does not know that they are a sinner, who does not feel that they are a sinner, who does not know that they're in trouble with God, who does not realize that they need forgiveness from Jesus Christ. There has to be some degree of concern for the soul. And so we see how value desperation can be. And by the way, we need to um, use desperate means, means to get other people to Christ ourselves if we can. And there's one thing we can do. We can't force people to come to Christ. But we can, as it were, bring them to the Savior every day of our life in prayer. We let them down to the feet of Jesus through the roof by praying. Full moon number three. Faith can be seen because it always goes into action. Please notice verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith... Now, in one sense, of course, we know that Jesus could see into their hearts. He saw the grace of faith because He put it there. But this is more than just what He saw in their hearts. I think this is a reference to what He saw happening before His very eyes. This desperate means these men couldn't get in, but they knew they had to get in. They needed to get their dear paralytic friend at the feet of Jesus. And so they, they take the tile off the roof and they find where he is and they let him down by ropes. And Jesus sees that as the action of faith. And when he saw their faith, and the faith I'm sure was of, of the four plus the paralytic. The paralytic had faith. A lot of times we just think, well, those four men had a lot of faith in it. The paralytic had faith. You know how we know he had faith? Because Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven. And you can't have your sins forgiven without faith. These men had faith, and their faith could be seen. And I want to say to you, dear people, that it always can be seen if it's real. 
it always goes into action. Paul says to the Galatians that faith works by love. Faith works. Faith goes into action by coming to Christ. Faith goes into action by serving Christ. James says, you show me your faith. Show. Key word, show. You show me your faith without your works. And he says, I'll show you my faith by my work. Such acting faith must be seen in our lives also if we claim to be truly converted. Full moon number four. The Lord Jesus Christ can always see into the deepest recesses of our hearts and of our minds. He knows everything we're thinking and feeling. You know why? Because he's omniscient. And that's just a big word for it means he knows everything. And you know what that means? That means he's God. Omniscience requires divinity. You cannot be omniscient without being God. Jesus was omniscient. Jesus was God. His first question to the scribes and Pharisees, he actually asked them two questions. They asked two. He asked two. His first question to them, you will find in verse um, 8, he says, why do you question these things in your hearts? We have already been told down in verse um, that they were questioning in their hearts. And all the parallel accounts emphasize the same thing. This is something going on inside of their minds, inside of their hearts. They're probably not even whispering to one another. But they're saying, Aha, he blasphemed. How can he do this? What kind of a man does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus says to them, before they had ever uttered a word, and I want you to feel the pressure of this question. I want you to try to pretend for a moment that you're one of those scribes and Pharisees sitting there. It's pretty uncomfortable. You've been sitting under authoritative teaching, and Luke tells us that apparently Jesus was doing miracles in that home before this one. You're very troubled. And then you hear what you think is blasphemy, and you start thinking about it, and then Jesus stops, and he looks you right in the eyes, and he says, "Um, Why are you thinking that I'm blaspheming? Why do you question these things in your hearts? Now, if you're one of those scribes and Pharisees, are you going to just sit there? That's not going to have any effect on you? Or are you going to say, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, we're in trouble. How did he know what I was thinking? I didn't say that to anybody. This man knows what I'm thinking? Yes. So you're in trouble, and we're in trouble, because he knows what we're thinking. That is, if we have not found forgiveness through Jesus Christ. He looks into the recesses of our hearts and minds. He knows everything we think, everything we feel. And obviously, if he knows the secret things that are hidden and no one else can see, he surely knows what we say and what we do. The omniscience of Jesus Christ proves his divinity. And this omniscience of knowing what people were thinking is something that he repeatedly demonstrated throughout the Gospels, and I don't have time to show you. Look for that when you read the Gospels. And dear people, we do well to think about his knowledge of our thoughts and desires often. Say to yourself often, Jesus knows what I just thought. I'm sorry, God, please forgive me. I'll trust Christ's atonement for that sin. Think about it often. We should live continually in the knowledge of His knowledge of us. Live in the knowledge of His knowledge. 
Now I want to come to the sun for a minute. We've seen uh, four moons, and I, I want to stop and look at the sun because I think that's where we've arrived in our passage. Here's the brightest revelation of the passage. Here is what I believe to be the primary purpose of Christ himself in performing this miracle. If you had to say, what was he mainly after, could you conclude from Mark's account? I think the answer is yes, you can. Because the primary purpose of Christ himself in performing this miracle is that he wants everyone to know that he's God in the flesh. And as God in the flesh, he has not only power, but authority, authority to forgive sins. Now, how do we know that's his primary purpose? Look, please, at verse 10. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's asking them questions. He's in the process of unraveling their argument. He's in the process of devastating their argument at their conclusion. And in the midst of it, he pauses and says in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I want you to know something. And I'm going to prove it. And I'm going to demonstrate it. And so we know that this miracle was performed not only in response to the faith of the five, but in response to the unbelief of the scribes and the Pharisees, and so that everyone might know that Jesus has authority to forgive sins, and only God can forgive sins. And this is what he wants people to see. Now, could I just explain for a moment how he undoes their argument? I think it's pretty easily seen and appreciated. The scribes and the Pharisees hear him say, Child, your sins are forgiven. I pronounce forgiveness. I declare that your sins are forgiven. And they say, What? You can't do that. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can absolve sinners. For anyone else to claim that prerogative is blasphemy. And you know what? They were right. They were right. No one can forgive sins ultimately but God. No one can claim to have the power and authority to forgive sins ultimately except God. Jesus claimed it. They thought he was blaspheming. There was only one problem with their conclusion about Jesus, and that is that they didn't take into, the, into account the possibility that he was God. And so he says to them in essence, okay, here's where you're coming from, I understand. Now I, I want to ask you a question because I think you need to understand this. What, what is really harder to say, your sins be forgiven, or to a paralytic, uh, get up, take your bread and go home? And I think if they were allowed to respond in dialogue, and they said, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven, because how, how do you attest that? How do you prove that his sins were really forgiven? That's an internal thing. There's no way to verify the truthfulness of your claim. It's harder to say to a paralytic, get up and take your bed and leave. And Jesus says, yeah, that's true. But if you're God, one is as easy as the other. But since you don't believe that I'm God, watch this. My child, get up, rise take your bed and go home. And immediately he gets up and he takes his bed and he goes home. Argument's over. Divinity is proven. A man who can forgive sins proves his authority to do so by doing what only God can do. 
raise a paralytic. And so Jesus undoes their whole argument right before their eyes. And surely there was nothing they could say. You just have to wonder what they were thinking and what they were feeling. The reality is they were getting madder and madder. And as this gospel unfolds, you find that they go from degree to degree until they try to kill him. They're not at all melted and humbled by this. And so Jesus is presenting himself as the king of the kingdom. We saw last week that he proved it by the way he called disciples irresistibly, by the way he taught truth authoritatively, by the way he expelled demons omnipotently, by the way he healed diseases immediately. And in our passage this morning, we see his authority by the way he forgave sin. And you know how I'm going to put, what word I'm going to put there? Divinely. He calls disciples irresistibly. He teaches truth authoritatively. He expels demons omnipotently. He heals sick people immediately. And he forgives sinners divinely. Because only God can forgive sinners. And he proves his divinity by doing the miracle. That's full moon. That's the bright sun. And now I come to full moon number five. Now this moon, I'm going to suggest, is, is bigger and closer and brighter than the others. And it's very closely related, in a sense, to the sun revelation. What are you talking about? Let me put it this way. Christ was showing that he had come to undo the damage of sin, to reverse the effects of the fall. And he wanted his witnesses especially to see the relationship of sin and disease. He wanted everyone to know that our primary problem is never first physical, but always first spiritual. I think even the paralytic apparently knew this. He was apparently repentant and trusting. And the first word Jesus wants to give him is a word of comfort in regard to his sin, because sin is always the first problem. Sin is the cause of disease. He's not saying, Mr. Paralytic, my child, you know that when you did such and such, I struck you with paralysis. No. He's saying paralysis in the world is due to sin. And I want you to appreciate, dear people, that the, Amer- that the miracles that Jesus did were designed by Him not only to show compassion, not only to prove that He was God, but specifically to prove that He came to undo the damage of sin. That He came to reverse the effects of the fall. And that He was going to do it through His redemption. And as soon as mankind falls, guess what appears on the earth? Blindness, deafness, muteness, paralysis, leprosy, death. And if this is all rooted in sin, Jesus comes along and says, guess what? The kingdom of God has arrived. It's breaking in. And I'm going to show you what I, the Redeemer, am ultimately going to do. These are just foretastes. The ultimate solution to disease and death is redemption. Watch what I do. I, the Redeemer, the Son of God who became the Son of Man, I will demonstrate that the kingdom of God has broken in and I can reverse these effects now as a temporary down payment, so to speak, earnest hope, promise, foretaste of what's going to come. Glorious redemption, glorification of the body, renewal of the whole earth. I'm just showing you who I am and what I have come to do. 
And we need to see the miracles from that perspective. They were designed to show that Christ was the Redeemer. Well, I only have time to show you one more thing very quickly. Um, I'm going to call it full moon number six. Can't develop it the way I want to. But you notice how verse 12 ends. It says that he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. Now here's what I want you to notice. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now I'm going to ask you to turn to one passage before I conclude. Would you go back to Matthew chapter 11? And I want you to notice verse 23. Matthew 11, 23. Where is Jesus doing this miracle? Capernaum. What does he say later in his ministry to Capernaum? Matthew eleven twenty three. And you, Capernaum, you will be exalted to heaven? Is that what you think? You're going to be exalted to heaven? Oh, no. You will be brought down to Hades. Here's the reason. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, and this is a mighty work that we're reading this morning. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. We might think if we just read Mark's Gospel, well, this is great, revival has come to Capernaum. This is going to go down in history as one of the great cities of faith. No, 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 no. No, they're astonished. But they're not changed. And that's the point I cannot develop as fully as I'd like to. I just want to say to you that astonishment is a very shallow emotion often. A very shallow, temporary, transient emotion. You can be astonished at all kinds of things, especially when you see miracles. But this city was not largely converted. And these same people who were astonished later come under the condemnation that I just read for you. So be very careful about putting trust in astonishment. Isn't this a beautiful picture of how all sinners come to Christ and should come to Christ? I want to just remind you folks, we are the paralytic. You are the paralytic. I am the paralytic. Or at least we all were once. These two men were once paralytics. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. They were also paralyzed. They were impotent. They couldn't do anything. They couldn't come to Christ on their own. And isn't that the testimony of every one of us? I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. I'm paralyzed. I'm impotent. I need somebody to get me to Christ. Well, of course, it's the Holy Spirit that gets us to Christ. And it's grace that gets us to Christ. And it's Christ who speaks to us and says, My child, get up. Take up your bed and go home. These two men that Pastor Sam was going to baptize in just a moment heard the Savior at some point in their life say to them, as He has said to those of us who are saved, My child, rise. And they rose because Jesus rose. And when they're in here in a few moments, they are going to symbolically show their union with Christ in His death and their union with Christ in His resurrection because the old Jamie Mindrup is dead. The old Michael Kincaid is dead. These men are new because they were formerly paralytics. That's how we get saved. Cry unto this Christ, and that faith to call upon Him will be responded graciously to by Him. 
I'm not going to pray because we need to keep moving. I hope you will pray that God will bless these words to all of our hearts in ways that we uh, most need them to be blessed. So let's make transition and enjoy in a few moments the symbolism of death, burial, and resurrection with Christ.